0: You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ernie Ortiz about change. What does it take to make big, lasting, literacy-changing classrooms and schools? As practitioners, we're always trying to interpret research pragmatically and put it into practice in the classroom and school communities. If you're an educator wondering how to change practices and shift mindsets, this episode is for you. And be sure to share this one with a leader who is ready to make change, too. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know
1: you do, too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, literacy podcast. Today, we are talking about change, changing practices, shifting mindsets, moving to high quality materials. But as we know, with change comes challenge.
1: And we have the perfect guest to talk to us about change, and we have with us today Dr. Ernie Ortiz, who is a senior literacy engagement specialist with AIM Institute for Learning and Research, and he was a principal in the Centennial School District near Philadelphia and has over 20 years of experience in public education, and he'll talk to us today about his leadership in schools, how he led some change with science of reading in those schools, and how teachers... Changed their practice and how students changed, well, how it changed how students were educated across the whole district. So we cannot wait to talk to him today. So, welcome. Welcome, Ernie.
2: Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Lori, for having me. Really excited to be here and have this conversation with the two of you.
0: Yeah, I think this is such a great way to enter this season of 2023. You've had quite a journey, both as a teacher and as a leader. So could you start off by sharing a bit about your science of reading journey? I feel like it's so specific to each one of us, and we'd love to hear yours. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, no, thank you, Lori, for asking. And it all started back in 2018 with the work that Emily Hanford was, was doing. And, and, and when I saw that she was putting out some information regarding a school district very near and dear to my heart, the Bethel Mayor School District, where I Graduated from, and is relatively close to. That yeah, is. yeah. So it's um, relatively close to where I live. Still about an hour, and uh, maybe an hour and ten minutes north from where I live. And so when you see something like that a successful, um, a, a, a success as successful, a school district as successful as has been near you, you're kind of like, huh, what are they doing yeah. differently potentially that we aren't? And um, so once you start to really uh, dive deep. You, you, your eyes begin to open up. And so for me personally, before I started having these levels of conversations with my teachers and then my colleagues in the district at, at my at the elementary level and then at the district level, you want I felt I needed to be more educated so that I could be a, a person who have, who can have engaged conversations. So my journey started back in 2018 and really um, coincided with my time where I was beginning my doctoral work. So for me, it made a lot of logical sense that if I was going to focus and dedicate so much time on a dissertation, it should be something that will help me professionally. So my learning with the science of reading have helped benefit me with my research for my dissertation. And with that, over the next several years, four years, it helped me to be uh, more educated, more involved and have a voice not only in my school, but in my district, quite honestly, in my state. and. And situations like this, I, some might even say my voice has gone more national, not that I'm trying to be this. Uh, oh, you can oh, say a,
0: worldwide, worldwide. <laughs> we have lots of <laughs> listeners in Australia and New Zealand to say hello nice. to all of them who want yes. to learn about change hey, hey. and reading science.
2: <laughs> right. And so, you know, I say that because it's something that for me as, a, as an educational leader, I always took that really seriously to be the instructional leader of my building. And especially of an elementary building where at the very least the children are going to leave my building learning how to read, yeah, so that my middle school colleagues would understand that the product that Ernie' school's putting out it's a good product, if you will, and so I really took it upon myself to to be that person, that instructional leader that would really help facilitate that level of change in in practice and ultimately impact or maximize student achievement,
0: oh my gosh, that's. So important. And I think so many leaders can resonate with that, right? Like they just take so much responsibility for both the teachers and students that they have under their care. So mm-hmm. I that just really resonates with me. Um, and we know that leaders play such a critical role. And what struck me about what you said is the, the active engagement, right? You were like, I need to dive deep. That's really yeah. important. That to me, when I was a teacher, always felt like, the leaders who cared the most were like your elbow partners, right? So they were diving deep with you. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it takes to disrupt the way, quote, it's always been done.
2: Well, uh, in terms of disrupting the status quo, you know, being a change agent, if you will. Yeah. There's, you, you have to understand your context. Every context is different. Your local context, my school, my school within the district. Uh, your your region, your local region, depending on the role that you're in, because you could be in a role that impacts a county, and so not just a district. And and, and I'm learning in my current role with AIM, every place is different. Every state <laughs> handles education differently, and and so there's a lot of nuance across the country for something that is um, extremely important. And that's that speaks to local control, and that's great. So with that understanding, what is your role in the terms of, uh, of change and disrupting the status quo? So as a building principal, I knew that the rapport that I had with my teachers was going to be critical in, in my ability to impact change at all level that was going to become more organic instead of top-down, if that makes sense. Anything top-down is going to be minimized in its success compared to something that's organic. And I could honestly speak to, although I'm no longer the principal of of McDonald Elementary School where I was for the last five years, the change is absolutely organic and is continuing to evolve and grow. It's not something where you ever reach the finish line or, or what we like to say at AIM, you're never cooked. You're always improving. You're always evolving. You're always refining. And so with that, understanding that You don't want to place any blame or shame. You want to honor the room. We honor the work that the teachers were doing, have done, highlighting the good that's happening, the glows, if you will, while also looking forward with, okay, this is where we've been. This is where we are. Here's the vision of the future that's going to be different than the past. And how is that going to be different? And then you you have to, as a leader, and as leaders, we've, we've done this, Identify what are going to be those short and medium and long-term goals because the long-term goals are so far away at times. You don't want to simply focus on those goals because then you might feel like you never get there, but you have these short and medium-term goals where you can celebrate the, the victories along the way, which then become the motivating factors. And so with that, there's a level of planning and also understanding that although I was in a more formal leadership role. There are countless teachers in my building who are the informal leaders who absolutely help with the messaging and help support the the, the wave of change that came in our literacy landscape at the building and in our district, and I would argue even in our county. So they were absolutely instrumental in, in creating this organic culture now that is infused in the school and in the, in the district that has really solidified the change.
0: Yeah. I think Melissa is going to ask you the next question, but I do want to say really fast, that just reminds me so much of um, Dr. Sonia Santelises in Baltimore. One of the things I always remember that she would say to us is lead from your seat. And I just think that's so powerful. I, sometimes as teachers, we feel like, oh, what can I do? There's so much that's out of my control. But it really is so powerful to lead from your own space. and And that does change your mindset and how you enter your classroom, your school, your district every single day.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, I was going to, I want to ask you about this side-by-side approach because I mean, I think we can all say we probably experienced maybe both, but I would definitely experience that top down where, you know, your principal gets an idea or the superintendent gets an idea. They read a book, they heard a podcast, something right. And they're like, this is what we're all doing now. And they all just say, uh-huh. this this is what we're doing now. I'm wondering could you like actually give some examples Ernie of what that side-by-side approach looked like in your when you were learning about the science of reading and making those changes. Mm-hmm. What did what did it actually like what did what did you learn about how did you learn about it? How did you share it with teachers? Like what what actually happened?
2: That's a great question, Melissa. And so when you when you learn something new, one thing I wanted to avoid was being a victim of reading something on Saturday morning and then coming in on Monday saying, all right, hey, everyone, this is what is we're this doing the new forward. thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're all like, oh, not no, you read a new thing. You read Shanahan's so- <laughs> post on Saturday
0: and now it's coming in yeah, on yeah. Monday, coming in hot.
2: <laughs> so you, you want to avoid that because quite honestly, that, that's, not, that's not going to lead to sustainability, success. And, and it could cause a level of frustration amongst the teacher ranks. And so that's why I took a, a lot of time to really educate myself because whenever change comes, there's always going to be questions. It doesn't matter what kind of change it is, there will be questions. And I wanted to be as informed as possible for the questions that came. And so a lot of those questions come from the people who want to be as stellar in their profession as possible. Because I am of the belief that Teachers have the best interests of children in mind, and they want to be the best at their craft. And so when they have some level of concern with how successful they can be, that raises their angst. And it's our role as leaders to reduce that level of angst. I say reduce because, quite honestly, can we ever eliminate it? I'm not sure. But I say reduce that level of angst so that when we're we're that side-by-side partner, it's a matter of... I understand that this is going to be possibly different than the way we've done it. Here's how it's going to be different. Here's how we're going to go about approaching it. And there's time. And I have an understanding with you that we're going to make mistakes along the way. I'm going to make mistakes in in the role of leadership with this level of support and implementation. Perhaps there might be some bumps in the road with regards to the instruction, but it's not an I gotcha. It is, uh, how can we help support and refine this so that ultimately the children improve with their reading ability? And you can translate that to really anything that we're doing, math, science, social studies, writing. Here, we're focusing on reading. And quite honestly, then embrace and encapsulated all things literacy because then you throw writing in there and whatnot. So, uh, and and, and spelling, which goes hand in hand with reading, but the focus was reading at first. And I will say that. And then it's like, as you learn more, and you're like, oh, I see how these, these uh, other components of literacy really intertwine each other and how I can glean information from for reading from something that maybe isn't specifically reading. And so with all that being said, the leaders who were really my early adopters, who would ask the questions, who wanted to learn more, who were intrigued, and were the risk takers, those early adopters that were willing to have me in their classroom. And I say have me because it's a matter of, you don't want to create a, um, a sense of like, uh, uh, here's here's my boss, here's my principal coming in and I need to make sure that they think I'm this stellar educator. You, you want to avoid that. You want to you want to create something that's going to be as safe and as welcoming of an environment, not just for the children, but for the adults as well, so that there can be some level of risk-taking, vulnerability, and ne- knowing that it's not going to be held against you and then I got you kind of format. And that ongoing dialogue that we had for four years, it was not just four weeks, four months, it was four years as we continue to refine, first, our instruction. That was the biggest thing. How are we going to go about refining our instruction? Because that's something that we can tweak almost immediately once we have these conversations. And then what we ended up seeing, Melissa and Lori, is that we had to start having conversations about curricular resources. Then we had to start having conversations about assessment. And then how how we had how those two pieces impacted the systems that we had in place, like MTSS. And so, with all of that, that's why this was a journey that was four years in the making. they're in year five, it's still going, it's not going to stop. there's always re- refinement and improvement to really enhance ultimately again, student achievement.
1: Well, I love that you said that it's not you know you can't just change one little thing and expect <laughs> you know a mm-hmm. miracle to happen right. I love that you you go you yeah. all went on that journey of what what else needs to change you know now that we change this now we're seeing this needs to change. I just I love mm-hmm. that you looked at the whole system and not just one one aspect. Yeah, and
2: and the teachers would bring that to my attention, right? You mm-hmm. know, and that's what was awesome, and they would and would say, oh, you know, the instructional piece, I I completely understand the phonemic awareness and the phonics and 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 leveraging those two instructional practices and that, that time that we have even more um, effectively. But the assessment piece, I have a question about that. And those conversations we would have, and, and there, were, there were times I would say, huh, you're right. We need to consider this, and okay. we need to look into this further. And I was – fortunate enough to be able to then bring those type those topics up to our central leadership director of teaching and learning the the assistant superintendent for uh, curriculum and instruction and they were very receptive to the feedback and then so that partnership that extends from beyond the building because there's only so much you can control from your seat from the teacher level from the building mm-hmm. principal level then you have to have that level of support at the central or district level and so with that I was fortunate enough, we were fortunate enough, and ultimately the students were as well because this impacts them with more than anything else, that we were able to coalesce as a team to really brainstorm and, and come up with a, a pathway to really help support us with instruction, curriculum, assessment, and the systems that really support all those, all those three.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering if you could – do you have any examples you could share? Like I think you might have mentioned mm-hmm. in our pre-call like a coaching cycle. Could you
2: yeah like yeah.
0: dig into that a little so, bit?
2: Yeah, so once you know we we identified prof- there was professional development that was needed, and and it's no secret. I you mentioned I worked for the Aim Institute, and at the time the Aim Institute, we partnered with them back in the in 2018 2019 school year, and that level of professional development was extremely helpful for us with understanding the science of reading, and then understanding how. Uh, the the research and literature translated the practice, and and that was just the baseline. And then from that, they had other resources that helped us grow with writing and and structured literacy and how. Uh, you know, I always had this um, and this I I say misconception that the science of reading and structured literacy were one and the same because I would use those terms interchangeably. And now I see that it's not that is not the case. But back then, I, that's what I thought. And so with that, we we didn't have coaches at that time in the in the school or in the district. But then. Over the time, we had coaches that were hired because we saw the need with implementation. We needed, we had this professional development, which was great. And we have the coaching that coincided with the PD, but we didn't have the job embedded professional development. And that's where the coaching came in. And as a building principal, try as I may uh, to be a partner with my teachers in, in instruction. At times, you know, they, they only sometimes ever saw me as their supervisor or as their boss, and and that's always going to complicate that coaching, um, uh, that coach teacher uh, relationship. So we hired coaches as a, as a district, and the coaches were instrumental in helping identify uh, areas that were of need in K one and two, three and four, five. When we were implementing new curricular resources or being more diagnostic and prescriptive with our data. How did we go about using that to really enhance and refine our practice? And so without this level of reporting back to me, oh, this is what I saw. You need to kind of check this out, Ernie, because it's not going well. No, it was not. There's this level of confidentiality, of support with the coaches and the teachers that, in my mind, helped me and my building be very effective in, in pushing it forward so that the instructional practices that we were hoping to see were happening. And I can tell you that when I came to visit in a more formal way, like a walkthrough, it was easy for me to say, yep, I'm seeing this, 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 this. And the conversations I would have as follow up with that, Lori, I just, I really appreciated the visit I had today. It was so great to see that you were um, infusing letters as soon as um, you're introducing them in phonemic awareness. Well, you know, that was because of my, my coaching cycle with uh, my coach with regards to really refining phonemic awareness instruction in, in my classroom. Wonderful. And then to have those kind of conversations and then trans, um, communicating that to, the school board, which ultimately decides, you know, human resources with how, how's that going to be allocated because literacy leadership isn't just about instruction. It's a, which is, it's big, but how do we use our talent? How do we use our time? How do we use our funding? Funding being a big role with regards to staffing. And so with all that being said, the coaches were huge instrumental K five. Now it's K 12. So we have four coaches and I still say, we even though I'm no longer there. <laughs> I still say we, but when I transitioned out, there were four coaches to help support this movement. That is now K-12. It's, it's It's gone past K-5, although it might have started in the elementary realm. The need is absolutely a K-12 need.
1: I, I want to take us on a little tangent. I hope you don't mind, Lori. <laughs> but I know that some of our listeners probably got stuck when you said the science of reading is not the same as structured literacy and probably mm-hmm. missed everything you just said because they were like, wait a second. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did think those two things were the same. Would you mind digging into that a little bit, Ernie, and actually talking about what you yeah. learned is the difference?
2: Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I would often use those two terms interchangeably. And it's my understanding that they're, they are separate. They, they're not, although they might seem what similar, they are absolutely, in my opinion, I see them as separate now. And what is termed as the science of reading is this large body of research and literature that shows uh, how reading develops the the aspects of the brain and how we how the brain develops with with regards to um its transition with um uh rewiring the neural pathways and all of this that's included with understanding how reading develops and structured literacy is the instructional practice because of that understanding of the research and, and literature so if you're understanding the science of reading and how this knowledge, this knowledge base, this evidence shows or suggests how effective uh How how people, children and not just children, but people learn how to read structured literacy encapsulates how we go about providing that effective instruction to maximize uh, reading achievement and reading development. And so that's how I see it. And and from my time when I learned it back in 2018 to today, that's how I communicate that so that there's an understanding that those two are nuanced, those two terms.
0: I think we could keep talking about that I for know. a moment. Do you mind? If I, <laughs> do you mind if I like keep on the tangent? So, <laughs> I actually I'll pose a question to you both. Um, within structured literacy, do you include something like knowledge building, or is that parsed out as a separate piece?
2: So, when you say knowledge building, is it for the um, the professional or the? I'm
0: mm. thinking the student.
2: The student. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah, I, I would probably I mean, knowledge building in terms of background knowledge or like yeah, I'm just like, trying to
0: like for example, um, we like the text sets that would build knowledge on a topic that would bring students what they need in order to be able to read and write, like build the voca- their vocabulary knowledge, be able to understand complex sentences about a topic, like right, such as Uh, space. Right. Um, and then they would have enough knowledge to be able to have a writing output. Whereas now I think sometimes we get stopped up at like, let's just build some background knowledge and then jump into the text. But actually the text should be doing the work of that. You know, so I like, I always like, I have this internal struggle. I don't know the answer to the question I just asked. I'm just (laughs) throwing it out there with two of my literacy friends here. Well, while we have a microphone.
2: (laughs) I mean, this is what I would say if one of my teachers were to ask me that question, and and I, I always preface the, these kind of responses when I'm when I'm having these conversations as I'm still learning alongside of you. Yeah. So this is what I I see it as right now. Uh, when we are working, for example, with background knowledge and we're looking to activate background knowledge, like you said, Lori, and sometimes we activate it and then we move on. But you know, building that background knowledge, connecting that background knowledge, and and, and how it's like compound interest. The more background knowledge we have on a a specific topic and how we engage in that specific topic, whether it's a text, uh, um, a particular text set, articles, something, a blog post that the children might be, uh, something from Newzella that they can engage in, that to me is an approach to addressing background knowledge. So I would say that, yeah, that fits within the structured literacy realm, in my opinion. Now- Maybe there are going to be some people who are listening to this and, <laughs> and maybe disagreeing with, but, and maybe others are like, yeah, I agree with you. Um, but that's the way I see it. And that's how that conversation would happen with my, with my teachers. And we would
1: yeah. get
2: to a point where we're not going to get too hung up on it, you know, and perseverate on it because quite honestly, it's good to have these conversations and learn, you know, one thing that we absolutely had a lot of conversations on, at least in my level where phonemic awareness and phonics and where was the uses of letters in between that and mm, and knowing yeah. that yeah okay so you asked that question about background knowledge that was absolutely something in my building where we would have a lot of conversation particularly with my k1 classroom teachers because you know we we were reading the research or reading the literature and and then following what um, some of the national conversation was and as we're looking to maximize our precious minutes in the classroom, which are 120 minutes every single day for the English language arts block, which includes reading and writing, because some people will say, you know, we only have 90 minutes for reading, but that included for us the 30 minutes of writing that was infused in the 120 minutes. We wanted to maximize, even if it might've been just five to 10 minutes a day of the phonemic, phonemic awareness and phonics overlap with regards to how do we infuse letters so that we're connecting the sound to letters as as as, as immediately as possible, as appropriate as, as possible. And those conversations kind of reminded me of that question with you asked, does background knowledge fit into that structured literacy uh bucket, if you will? Well, yeah, you know, there's so many conversations that are similar to that. And as we as long as we as educators are continuing to be curious, uh seek those answers to so that we can improve our our craft without being too rigid and too closed minded to to, to be open to other possibilities, that's what helps us remain uh, healthy in our in our craft and as educators.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good point. that I mean, we're all still learning, right? Like Lori said, even mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to this question, right? I'm just yeah. <laughs> posing it to you all. I, what I think is interesting about that question, Laurie, is that uh, I think we can all agree that the knowledge, vocabulary, phonics, phonemic, all of that is based on, you know, the science of reading would say that all of that sure. is important. Yeah. The structured literacy, I think what makes it easier to put the phonemic awareness and phonics in that structured literacy bucket is that there's a finite number of letters and sounds, right? So yeah. I only need to know this this many letters, this many letter sounds. And so therefore I can structure that very easily. It's a lot more difficult to structure the knowledge and vocabulary, For which sure. is, yeah. you know, infinite and we don't, you know, it can be it can really it's so be complex. anything. It's so much more complicated. Not to say it can't be a shouldn't be a part of it. It's just harder to put it into a structure.
0: Yeah, I think that that's why when I'm on social, I see structured literacy often interpreted as
1: phonics and right. phonemic awareness. Right, because you have 26 letters, 44 sounds, clear. and we right. got to make sure they know this. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, so I think I mean we. I think there are key components that are really important. Like we know that knowledge has a really important role in comprehension. Yeah. But it's much harder to explain in like a 10-second Instagram reel than it is to to talk about phonemic awareness for a hot second on and not yep. not that one is easier than the other. I'm just saying like one is more complex than the other.
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So yeah, so I think like going back to that idea of change, that's where that question came from. Like I really 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 want to take 2023 to think about the change and shift of like Yep. how can we think about quote structured literacy as that body of uh, not as that body of research but as different as that body of research but using that body of research to help us inform that and what does that really look like so you're making me think a whole lot today ernie yeah. so thank you
2: yeah and and <laughs> there's baby steps to change right so when we started our change process we were looking at those foundational skills and that's because we really wanted to help support the success and our three, four, five bands, because, you know, nationally, it's, the, it's no secret. That's where a lot of state assessment starts to happen. And whether we, however we feel about state assessments, good, bad, or indifferent, they're a metric that are often used and referenced. But we felt that if we were going to address three, four, five, we had to start in K 1 2. We had to. And I can tell you, you know, my son, who our third our third child? He's still at the school where I was the building principal. I was his building principal <laughs> since he was in kindergarten. Aww, so he was it. really he's, he's in fifth grade. He's in his last year of uh, his elementary years, and I'm very still close to a lot of the teachers. His teacher and I we we talk often enough, and she has explained to me that she has seen an evolution with regards to students' ability to effectively decode. And she's a fifth grade teacher, and she sees a, 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 a a strength overall that has started to come up in the pipeline and is really peaking okay. this year and which then allows her uh to do more of those upper strand um if you think of Scarborough's reading rope focusing on those upper strands without the the need to have to remediate some of those lower strands which can impede the success of students with uh, making those connections, that, which okay. will help them comprehend. So, you know, we we see that that's a victory. And I would share that level of uh, of a quote or feedback to the staff, as to K-1-2 teachers in grade level meetings, because the impact is being seen. Maybe not in the assessments, but it's being seen anecdotally. And overall, then we can continue to refine and then maximize our, our time while while looking at those upper strands and refining our, our approach to comprehension, if you will, vocabulary. I know vocabulary instruction was a really big emphasis for me during my last two years, because uh, I felt like that was the next step in in our evolution to really maximizing our instructional time and, and getting the biggest maximization of student achievement.
0: You know, I keep thinking about as a teacher, if I wanted to advocate for change and, Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to approach the leader in my building or yeah. I wanted to approach other teachers. It feels like such a tricky conversation. And I'm wondering if you have any advice or any thoughts on how a conversation like this might be able to support like elevating a school. I mean, I know our focus is students always, but sometimes I think the adults get in the way of each other. So curious for your thoughts.
2: Sure. Yeah, and I've been asked that question a number of times over the years, how do I approach my building principal or how do I approach the supervisor of curriculum instruction to really start this conversation? And you have to know your your context. You have to know the, 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 the decision makers in your di- school or in your district. And it's always, it's always a, a good idea to approach it in a way that's going to be positive and not come across as we're doing something wrong. We need to, we need to fix it. And for me, when I saw, for example, the Bethel Mayor School District and that information, I wanted to, it's like, oh, here's this school being highlighted. I want to learn more about what they're doing. And then comparing that to what we were doing, okay, there's certain aspects that we were doing and that were kind of the same, similar. So maybe highlight that when you approach, you know, start with the positive. And and then build off of that to improve to maximize this positive that we're we are doing. Here's something to consider, and come with some suggestions. I always appreciated when um, one of my teachers would come with to me with a suggestion. Here's a concern, or here's something that you maybe you should be aware of, or maybe we should be aware of. Here's a possible consideration or or or, or, or solution to this concern if it was a concern, which, you know, as a building principal, all concerns come to you, but I always (laughs) found it really positive and appreciated when it wasn't just a concern and then, okay, you figure it out. It was concern. And hey, here's some, I was, as I was thinking about this, Ernie, here's something that maybe we can do. Oh, that's great. And I really appreciate that because as a building principal, we, we are tasked with being the instructional leader, but we also manage a building and there's a lot to that. And sometimes that could be so much that it takes away from our instructional leadership. So it's all about the approach, in my opinion. It's about the approach. Come with a a positive mindset and and come with some level of information, whether it be data, whether it be a a podcast, whether it be an article, something that's going to be easily digestible. Don't come with research that's going to be dry and boring because I can tell you it's probably not going to be read. Not everyone enjoys reading research. I did it during my dissertation, but that's because I had to. Yeah. It's, you know, I do it now because that's part of my role and I appreciate that. But most people, let's be real, you know, the, the research in its, in its kind of more academic form can be dry unless you're absolutely into that topic. And so mm-hmm. how can we present information in a way that's going to be engaging a couple pages or or a video i've always appreciated videos and prior to this call we were talking about podcasts and then and, and getting through um certain podcasts and that's that's always a great thing so sharing something that could be a conversation starter or highlighting it was really important for us to to see someone locally doing something well because now our state has legislation that's kind of supporting this movement even more so when you have a mentor school or mentor district nearby absolutely easy to reach out and, and ask those types of questions and, and, and engage in, in dialogue that is going to be like uh, uh, collegial nature and and maybe you bring it back that level of information and and, and have internal conversations. That would be my recommendation um, and and quite honestly I don't want to say be the squeaky wheel but don't give up if at first you don't succeed try and try again but at a, an appropriate don't overwhelm but come back in 3 to 4 weeks and and follow up and and continue to be someone who's going to maintain that level of persistence because sometimes we're just so busy as leaders that we're going to get to something but it won't be right away and, and, and sometimes it's a gentle reminder is very helpful. Yeah. That would be my that my recommendation it's a really my
1: good feedback. Point. <laughs> it is mm-hmm. patience. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep.
1: Ernie, I remember on our pre-call, you mentioned um, that you used to just like call some of these researchers and talk to them, (laughs) which I I just think that's so fabulous because I mean, I'm thinking of school leaders who I know who, you know, they were high school science teachers and they become a principal of an elementary school and now, you know, are in charge of the instruction of teaching students how to read. But that wasn't. Necessarily, what they learned in, when they were becoming a teacher. So mm-hmm. I'm just. Do you have um, stories to share or, or tips for people to learn um, about the science of reading in in interesting yeah. ways, not just reading all the research? <laughs>
2: yeah, you know. So social media was very huge for me, and particularly Twitter. And so I've made. Uh, numerous friends and and form bonds through Twitter that will last my professional and probably my personal career and lifetime. And so um, with that, when you see things like I, 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 re- I remember reading an article in the Reading League Journal, and Dr. Susan Brady was discussing um, phonological sensitivity and phonemic awareness. And I was... And it was in contradiction kind of to what we were doing in the classroom at McDonald. And I was like, Oh, I raised my eyebrow." was Like, okay, you know, I'm always looking to maximize our 120 minutes. So uh, I reached out to someone who had a connection to Dr. Susan Brady and she was so kind uh, of us to, she was so kind to connect the two of us together. And and I was able to have a conversation with Dr. Susan Brady about this. And I remember uh, another person um, who, who was speaking about, phonemic awareness with and without letters and and i reached out to that that researcher after their article was posted and we had a great meeting and and they shared you know this article isn't meant to uh cast blame or shame it's meant for practitioners like yourself ernie this is what they were, he was telling me to have a reflection of what you're what you're doing in your school and then looking to refine and, and enhance it that's all and i i really appreciated that because as a practitioner, we're in the trenches, and I believe all practitioners want to do as as good a job as possible to help support the children. And so, having social media uh, to be able to connect with re- researchers and and I remember meeting uh, uh, Dr. Mark Seidenberg at the symposium uh, Research Symposium several years ago. I was still a building principal at the time, and he was asking my he was asking me questions about our resources and, and, and our curriculum. And I was just like, you're asking me. And he's like, "Yeah, <laughs> you are, you are in it. Like, he's like, I'm just a researcher. You're living it. And I I find it so interesting, your perspective. And that really kind of turned the light bulb on for me because he's right. Like we, as practitioners, we belong at the, at the, uh, we should, we should have a seat at the table in this type of conversation because we're living it every day. I really appreciated that. And knowing that, he, he, he was kind of the initial person who gave me the sense that they're willing to have conversations with us, even if it's um, in person, through email, uh, through Zoom. And so with that, being able to just reach out to them and, and know that they, they're they more than willing to connect and just kind of provide that level of extra feedback based off of whatever article or podcast that you read or listened to is really, really awesome in knowing that. And it just it takes a, a phone call or an email away.
0: Yeah, mm. it makes me think, Melissa, about how I know this is uh, Natalie's a journalist, but it makes me think about one of our first episodes, um, Ernie. I'm, <laughs> we I'll tell you the story since you're you, <laughs> d- you probably don't know it. We did kind of did the same thing as you. We were reading Natalie Wexler's articles. We were like, oh my mm. gosh, this would be so cool to have a conversation with her. We'd love to to learn more and hear more and just just talk about it and. We were like, what the heck? Let's just email her. Let's just see. We'll email her. We'll see if she responds. And mm-hmm. when she responded, it was such a boost of confidence. We thought, well, yeah. heck, we're just gonna let's go email some others. And we then we did, we started just reaching out. And I mean, researchers and journalists, they want to talk about their right. work. Mm-hmm. And very often, too, they they want to share it with you, not behind that paywall. So yeah. like anyone listening, if you're like, Oh, I saw this thing and I really want to read it, I mean. Just reach out; they will very likely send it to you. And that—that that I think struck us as like, wow, everybody is really in this learning together.
1: Yeah, and I think what's so important about you, your meeting with Mark Seidenberg is back to our conversation about science of reading versus yeah. structured literacy. Is, oh, <laughs> I, you know, I think people hear often that idea that the science of reading is like. There's so much research, and it's kind of like set in stone. like we know how it happens, and mm-hmm. I think that's true. We do know how the brain learns how to read. But I think there's still so many questions about what does that mean for school what it looks like in a school? What does that mm-hmm. mean for implementation, for instruction? Yeah. You know what how do you actually make it happen? There's still a lot of research to be done there, and a lot of a lot of questions about what it looks like and teachers really are, the people doing it and making it happen.
2: And that's where you know I, I I appreciate the role that I'm in now because I can serve as that thought partner, having had the experience that I've had when I work with schools, districts, educational service centers across the country who have these level of questions and thoughts. Implementation is isn't just you know you're, you're tweaking instruction because I mean it's part of that, but you're you're impacting understanding as a professional. Then you're impacting your your practice, but then. It, it, decision-making with regards to curriculum cycles, decision-making with regards to how we're going to leverage our precious professional development time. How are we going to spend funding? How are we going to communicate this out to parents? What does this mean for report cards? What does this mean for us as professionals when I'm sitting across from the table with the parent and I'm communicating uh, the implications of of the report card? You know, all of these things are what well, I lived as we went through the change because we had to change our report card. We, we had to communicate um, the new assessments and what yeah, the, the assessments right. mean because these assessment results were going home. And yeah. some of the parents are like, I don't know what all this <laughs> green, yellow, red means and can you help me? So there's this level of, well, we, yeah. And so our our assessment calendar evolved where it only had the assessments and the dates, When we first started, it had then when the information was going home to parents, it had um, um, when we were going to analyze the the data, because all of that had to be included in the assessment calendar. So that level of implementation, you're right, uh, Melissa, I I believe you mentioned it. Implementation is still evolving and implementation science. Sometimes I got to sometimes it just seems like common sense to me, though. It's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, what are you going to do? We need to communicate this to parents so that they aren't mm-hmm. blindsided when we come into conferences and we have this level of concern. That level of information needs to go home and they should be able to easily understand it. And we as a professionals have to be able to speak to it. And that's something that involved coaching, but also strategic planning and, and involved. And I know our assessment calendar was an example of that evolution, how it went from simply having the dates of when the assessments were going to be given to more of when is information going to go home, when are we going to have data meetings on t- to follow up and support that. All of that is what really helped evolve uh, our assessment calendar. And that, so that's a, an example of supporting implementation and, and evolution of becoming more of a, uh, un- a literacy, well, literacy and math, really, uh, mindset with regards to using that data to be diagnostic and prescriptive.
0: Yeah, can I back us up and and just ask a question about the this idea of change and implementation? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about lots of different personalities of educators. As you're standing there, Ernie, and you're like, hey, y'all, we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're gonna change the way it's always been done. Here's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> and then you yep. you roll out your plan, right? I'm yep. thinking I'm a teacher who might be completely skeptical, like I'm not mm-hmm. not hundred percent with this with this guy, and then you might have teachers who are like, "Yeah, I'm I'm gonna jump on. I'm I'm here for it. I'm I'm into it." Mm-hmm. You might have someone in the middle, like w- what happens and how do you eventually get everyone on board? And maybe that's an impossible question to answer.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's impossible. I, I, I think what I what what was my experience is. I didn't, go, I didn't go in saying, all right, move from this point forward, this is what we're doing. Oh, it was yeah. not that top down. What I, How I approached it was, here's what we need to start considering. Start considering sound walls versus word walls. Here's why. And so, again, I planted the seed. And then those teachers who are, who are like diving in head first, those early adopters, they're like, tell me more. And it was things like sound walls, or understanding, I remember uh, speaking about the simple view of reading, and mm-hmm. introducing that term for the first time to my faculty and, and them having uh, the same reaction to, that I had when I first heard the term. What is the simple view of reading? What is that? What is Scarborough's reading room? Yeah. Okay? What, why are you telling us about sight words and what do you mean they're different than high frequency words and irregular words? No, it's the same thing. What do you mean we're, we shouldn't be doing memorizing of sight words? A common practice that we have been doing at least my entire career. I did yeah. that as a teacher and I absolutely was supporting and and doing that as a building leader for the first part of my eight years as a, as a principal. And so with that, you start laying the seed of these are points of, of, instructional practice that we need to reconsider. And so the people who were going to dive in first came to me naturally and were like, I want to learn more. What do you mean? I do sight words. Are you saying we shouldn't be doing sight words? And those conversations were very organic. Those 10 people, I remember it like it was yesterday, were my early adopters. And they covered primary, intermediate, special ed, ESL. They, they came from all the different aspects that you can think of in a school. And so with that, they helped with the messaging, again, informal leaders, lead mm-hmm. from your seat. And so as we continued to have more momentum, the early majority started to come on board. So then they were like, okay. And then they had an outlet. If they didn't feel comfortable coming to me and showing some level of vulnerability because they had questions, they had a colleague they could reach out to who, who was uh, someone that could be that cheerleader, if you will. Yes. Yeah this is this is absolutely effective and here's how it's I've seen it change my practice and and support student achievement in my classroom. Oh, okay. Tell me more. What what is that? And so that's where it became very organic and then as a district we make plans to provide this level of knowledge and professional development as a baseline and then what are the pathways to for further improvement which is something that has here are your options. Here's your mandatory training. Here are your options, and that's where it became really organic and a culture shift in the school and in the district. It wasn't like this is what we're doing moving forward. I was a little strategic with how I was going to start planting seeds. Who was going to be someone who was going to be really into this, you know, um, early kind of adopter type of, of uh, approach with uh, embracing it, and then they they were like, my, if you're familiar with Cotter's change theory, they were my early coalition who helped really move the needle forward.
1: Didn't you bring up iPhones when we talked about this on the pre-call? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I
0: I literally just wrote down yeah. in my notebook iPhone and then I asked yeah. you that question. The I, like,
2: I do remember the iPhones. <laughs> yeah. So the the metaphor I like to use and my teachers will tease me about it. In the early adopters were the were if you remember back in the day when we would have to wait for some of the new tech to come out and and there were lines for the new iPhones, right? So the early adopters were the people who would wait in line for the new iPhone. As soon as the iPhone store opened up, they were there ready to purchase the phone. They were the early adopters, where the early majority were the people who would wait the second weekend to buy the iPhone when the lines died down. Yeah, I'm going to get it, but I'm going to wait until the lines die down. And I'm going to let other people maybe work out some of the the, <laughs> the the kinks, if you will. And if I have a question, I know I have an outlet that I can, hey, I know you got this iPhone two or three weeks ago. I'm having a hard time with the settings here. Can you help me out? I saw up to... This, the same way and then eventually you get the late majority who they might be the people who buy the iphone 13 when the iphone 14 comes out <laughs> right because they're, they're looking to save money or for whatever reason right and then you absolutely have the, the the late adopters who quite honestly have to buy the new iphone because they don't make the type of version of flip phone that they still might have and then that's where <laughs> that's my change, dad <laughs> okay shout out to melissa's dad and so when you have change, you're going to have some professionals who might cling to an instructional practice approach, a belief, because this is the way we've always done it, or I saw success in this regard because back in you know five or 10 years ago, we were doing some really great things, uh, and I, we accept that, and, and we appreciate that. Moving forward, here's the expectation. So that late, those late adopters who absolutely just need to be told what to do at times, and that's just part of leadership, you have to understand that. You provide that level of support, coaching, grace for weeks, months at a time, but it gets to a point, and you have to know this as a leader, that the clear expectation has to be provided and, and move forward with so that there's no ambiguity, there's no cracks in the foundation. It's not perfect. It might might, you know, be slightly uncomfortable at times. And I had some of those conversations where I had to be very clear with my expectation as a building principal. And, and when I came in to visit your classroom, Lori, this is what I expect to see. But that's that's the responsibility I had with myself, and I, I slept okay at night knowing that I was doing this because it was in the best interest of children, mm-hmm. not because I was a, it was a power play as a leader.
1: I think before we wrap up, Lori, just <laughs> one last question for Ernie: of is there anything else that you learned on your leadership journey that you want to share with everybody? Any things that stuck out along the way?
2: Yeah, um, you know, for you're always evolving, always. So when I, when I first learned about the science of reading and as we were first going about implementing the science of reading uh, and identifying resources to really support what was missing and, and then you feel good, like, oh, yeah, this is good. Okay, we're set. You're never really set. You're always evolving. And be okay with having to be nimble and pivot and change when, when you need to. Don't be no, this is the way we have to do it with regards to a particular instructional practice. Be open. you know, I will tell you I was very I was very rigid with doing phonemic awareness without letters. I'm, I'm just being super transparent. And then as I began as I began to understand more of the research and literature and speaking with who I consider to be mentors uh, in, in this literacy space and understanding, okay, so we want to use letters with phonemic awareness as soon as possible. Make that connection. Okay. And so having that conversation with my teachers, it, what, it, what, I didn't come in and say, this is what we got to do. Again, don't do that. Have those conversations with your teachers and say, hey, here's what the national conversation is about. And here's what we perhaps should consider. What are your thoughts? And you'll see they might have similar thoughts. And have similar feelings and it's like, okay, and they'll help create that level of change even more organically than you could as a leader when you were just giving a directive. And so that be open to the idea that you're always going to be evolving and assessment for me was huge. Leveraging, understanding your assessments, leveraging the data in a way that's going to impact and improve instruction. I, I understood that concept at, when I started as a building principal, but I absolutely had a thorough understanding it tor- towards the last four years of my time of, of eight years of building leadership. I understood that we wanted to use data to inform instruction, but I really didn't understand how that really what that looked like. But you have to understand your your assessments. You have to understand what they measure, and then how you can use that. Uh, to inform instruction particularly during the mtss process and why we progress monitor and why we uh, uh, how we have we can't be set for for months at a time with a particular intervention we have to always be constantly looking to see if it's a, if it's working and then we have to adjust that understanding really helped me lead our building our mtss process my tag team partner our assistant principal mike van Buren who you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with. As we grew together as a leadership team, and as we grew together in our knowledge, that helped us be better leaders in the MTSS process. Because everyone knows we are in that process as admin, right? As leaders, and so we didn't. We were not passive in that role. We didn't just sit there, nod and shake our heads. We were engaged, and you have to be to really maximize that that system. You can't just talk about it. You got to be about it. And so that those are my two pieces of advice. Be okay with always evolving. Don't be rigid with a specific approach, even if it does align with what some people would call alignment with the science of reading and also understand your assessments, what they measure and how it impacts your instruction.
0: Well, I know that we are coming to a close and we have a couple rapid fire questions. All right. You you ready for them? I'm ready. All right,
2: Melissa,
1: go ahead. What do you love to read?
2: What do I love to read? Oh goodness. Well, Okay. Be- besides the obvious sports, which I do love to read, um, I am immensely interested in the overlap between equity and literacy.
0: What do you love to watch?
2: Oh gosh! Um, so besides sports, I, I start. I'm just yeah, yeah, no, no, no <laughs> for sure. But um, I never watched Game the Thrones, Game of Thrones, and when it initially came out. But then the newest version. The prequel came out, and then I had to binge watch the Game of Thrones. And I'm like <laughs> so into that type of era, uh, 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 not era, that, that type of era of like the medieval times or whatever. And so, like, I'm watching Valhalla on Whoa. Netflix. Um, I'm watching, what, um, um, with, with um, the, not The Whisperer, oh, something with um, uh, Henry Cavill on, on Netflix, The Witcher. Oh man, it's such her. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so cool. I, I, do you I find really yourself like talking
0: in that time period? <laughs>
2: <laughs> to my kids, <laughs> sometimes, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I ask because when I like binge watch Ted Lasso, I,
1: I was like, and suddenly we're all talking with British you know? accents. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Yep.
1: All right. What do you love to listen to?
2: Oh, uh, I love to listen to music from when I was in high school and, and, and college. So nineties, yep. hip hop, R and B, early two thousands, hip hop, R and B. That is what is absolutely on my Apple Music playlist. And mm-hmm. my kids have a thorough understanding of, of the performance of the the performers of those era. They know who Jay Z <laughs> is. They know who uh, well they probably already knew who Beyonce is but you know like people <laughs> that uh so. <laughs> yeah right but um you know others that are from that era that probably they wouldn't really know now they they know because of my my music uh that I listen to
0: <laughs> I love that same here all right final question <laughs> why do you do what you love for literacy or for education
2: I do it for the students absolutely I do it for the students and because I have that I hold that responsibility as, as a leader very seriously with regards to that instructional leadership. And sometimes the managerial piece can be so overwhelming as a building leader, or as a district leader, but our instructional leadership role is very important. You know, when, when you go into an interview, that's what they're going to be asking you most times is how are you going to be that instructional leader? They're not going to ask you about um, fire drills and, and they're not going to ask you about um, uh, the, the launch schedule. Which uh, those are very important things, and they have to be in place so that safety is of the utmost m- importance. But an instructional leadership is so big and so important, and ensuring that these children know how to read. If you can't read, you're eliminating a quarter of the math test. You're absolutely eliminating a lot of the science and social studies learning you're going to do because that's ostensibly is all reading and and writing. And so with that, you have to be you have to be literate. And, and have that level of, of confidence in you, because uh, if you don't have that level of literacy, then it does impact your perception of yourself, perhaps, and others' perception of you. And so it's just really important to start and get it right at the earliest age as possible. And regardless of where they're coming from, when they enter our school, it is our responsibility to help them learn how to read and how to write and be successful in literacy.
0: That's why we're here too. We're so glad that you joined us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for talking with us.
1: Yeah, I I would say for our listeners, if you're a teacher and you have a leader that should hear these messages, definitely share with your leaders that need to hear um, some of these. I think it's a nice gentle way of saying, hey, I have a podcast that would be great for you to hear from. So definitely share it with leaders.
2: Yeah. and, And Melissa and Lori, I'll also add, reach out to me. I have met with people at six, seven in the evening. And, and because quite honestly, during the school day is crazy. I get it. We're we're working with the kids and we're doing our thing. I've met yeah. with people on the weekends, you know, 30 to 60 minutes at a time. And just they, and and that's, there's no charge for that. It's like when the researchers met with me, you, you know, we're, we're colleagues, we're professionals. And, and these are just meetings to really right to work together and just pick each other's brain. So please feel free to reach out.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for that offer. And we, yeah. are, we are so glad that you talked with us. Thank you for saying yes to this conversation. And thank Absolutely. you for energetically sharing all <laughs> of your knowledge. We appreciate you so much. Thank
1: you.
2: Melissa and Laura, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Thank you for all you're doing. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com.
1: And to keep learning together... Join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram
0: and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend, or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts.
1: Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees.
0: We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.